Hi, this is Paul. The Rest is History has a two-part episode this week on Jesus. Jesus the mystery and Jesus the history. Now, if you're just using the regular feed from The Rest is History, uh, you've only gotten Jesus the mystery so far. If you're a Rest is History club member, then you get both um, you get both episodes at once. Now, I'm I've been, well, I'm not going to let you know what I'm thinking about. Think, I've got some ideas for the new year. I think some of the some of the crew, some of the crew will be happy and some of the crew will be disturbed. But we'll see if we'll see if those new ideas come. Give you a little teaser there. Anyway, I've listened to both episodes, and I didn't necessarily find anything that surprised me in both episodes. I've listened to Tom and Dom quite a bit over the last few years, and like I said many times, this is. The Rest of History is my favorite uh, audio-only podcast. Um, sorry, Justin Brierly. <laughs> you were my first, Justin. You were my first. But uh, The Rest of History is my favorite now. And and because the second episode isn't out yet, I'm going to sort of hold back on playing any of that to comment on it yet. But it's it gets into this question that very much touches on the Exodus series. The Exodus series, as I said before in my previous videos, doesn't focus on the question that modernity has been fixated upon, which is, did it or didn't, didn't it happen? And that's where in the second episode, where Tom Holland begins to give his ideas about, well, how to read the, how to read, let's say, because it's Christmas, this is why these things come out. How to read the Christmas stories. Was Jesus born in Nazareth or Bethlehem? Does it matter? Does it not matter? Was, um, you know, how, how can we understand the literature of the Bible? How can we understand, really, this gets into relevance realization in terms of, okay, what's really important? And, and this very much touches back on this video that triggered me. And I didn't give it much. Um, I didn't give it much attention because I didn't want to pay any attention to it. But where he goes is very much. He goes exactly where modernity has gone with these stories, and in many respects, he misses the point. And he's pretty much riffing on. Jordan Peterson and Jonathan Peugeot and Douglas Murray's conversation. And let's, I've played this clip a few times, but it just really nails what's going on here. Does Peterson think that the events of the Bible are fictional? Or does he think that they really happened? Well, okay. Here you have these two categories. Fiction really happened. Fiction didn't happen. Really happened, happened. Okay. So what? Now, some people, when they hear me say, so what? They'll say, aha, see, it's mythology. These are shaping stories. It doesn't matter if they really happened or not. Okay, what do you mean by really happened? What do you mean by really happened is, are these adequate physical descriptions? Well, what do you mean a physical description? Because, of course, you've got questions of, at what level is the physicality you're describing? Because even physical descriptions are subject to relevance realization. I might be I might be giving you the finger with my other hand. Is it relevant? I don't know. This hand, no finger involved here. How do you know what's in the other hand? Can't see it. It all depends on 
relevance realization. And which finger was I giving you? Was I giving you a finger like this to pull? Was I giving you another more um, offensive sign? What was I doing? It's all relevance realization. It's all the question of, okay, what exactly is coming down and meeting? And again, I am not a skeptic with respect to questions about physical correspondence, but physical correspondence and stories don't always match up. Now, he plays a little bit of Peterson here. Let's take a listen. Let's take a listen. The Old Testament reports in the book of Exodus. Okay. Now, again, he always says, um, did the events of the Bible really happen? Well, excuse me, which events? Because, again, as I've listed many times in videos, the Old Testament lists many events that really happened. The destruction of the temple, extremely important event. Uh, all, no, people aren't skeptical about those events. Well, what about other events? Well, which events are you skeptical about? Oh, the ones that seem to point to miraculous things. Now, both both um, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook, as historians, know very well that, in fact, ancient recordings of all sorts of things involve all sorts of ideas. If just read, just just read anything from from the ancient world, and you'll have miracle workers, and you'll have miracle stories, and you'll have you'll have you know things falling from the sky. Even you know, um, oh, can't think of it right now. Here's the example I was thinking of. One day, it was said, shortly after Livia's second betrothal, a remarkable event occurred. An eagle swooping down over where she was sitting dropped a white chicken in her lap. Even more astonishing, the hen, which was perfectly unharmed, had a sprig of fresh laurel in its beak. An awesome portent, self-evidently. Bird and laurel were both duly removed for safekeeping to a Claudian estate just outside, just outside Rome, at Prima Porta, on a promontory above the Tiber. Here the hen produced a brood of chickens, while the sprig of laurel planted in one of the villa's one of the villa's borders sprouted to luxuriant, luxuriant effect. The implication of the episode, as time went by and Livia's hold on Augustine, on Augustine tightened, appeared evident enough to most people that she was destined to hold the power of Caesar in a fold in her robe and keep it under her thumb. And then to bookend, bookend it a little bit later in the story, Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Germanicus was dead, and with him the entire dynasty of which he had been the last surviving member. Its extinction came as no surprise to those versed in the art of reading omens. In the villa once owned by Livia, in the laurel grove stood four withered trees. Each one had been planted by a Caesar, and each one shortly before the Caesar's death had died. Then shortly before Nero's suicide, the tree that he too had planted had begun to wither, and with it, from the roots up, the entire laurel grove. The chickens too, bred of the hen, dropped miraculously into Livia's lap, had all expired. The meaning could hardly have been any clearer. The line of the Caesars was destined to end with Nero, and so it had proved. Okay, you tell me. Is this a miracle? Did this really happen? Let's listen on. That the Jews were enslaved in Egypt before embarking on a journey through the wilderness after being liberated from their slavery. Moses is said to part the Red Sea during the escape. 
which he then drops on the pharaoh and his soldiers, drowning all of them and facilitating the Jewish escape. Quite a specific series of events. So, Dr. Peterson, do you think that the events of Exodus actually happened, or are they just fiction? You might ask, okay, again, look at his two categories. Did they actually happen, or did they, are they fiction? Listen to his answer. Well, did, did the events in Exodus really happen? And our conclusion was, well, not only did they, they happened in a, in a meta manner, they're still happening. Okay. They happened so, in, they happened with such reality that they haven't stopped happening. And so, and what does that mean? Well, everyone still struggles with the spirit of tyranny. And everyone still struggles with the fact that when you escape from a tyranny, you, you don't hit the promised land, you hit the desert. And then when you're in the desert of your imagination or with your lost peers, then you need to struggle with what guides you and what should guide you when you're lost. And then you have to grapple with the problem of appropriate and uh, uh, reliable forms of governance, because that's all part of the Exodus story. And so it didn't happen the way a happening would occur if you just detailed it out as a camera holding empirical observer. It happened in a way deeper way that just doesn't stop happening. So Peterson is right. Did Harry Potter really happen? Well, we know Harry Potter is fiction, but the reason people have interest in it is because they see what Harry Potter, what is in Harry Potter in their world. This is the whole business about archetypal ideas, right? This is a whole business about, so again, <laughs> Mark is going to love this, navigating patterns, archetypes, narrative, and story. You're asking about, let's say, historical reference reference on the story level. Okay. These things are exceedingly difficult to demonstrate in ancient history. Look at the question of Livia and the laurel and the hen's egg. Did this happen? Don't know. Okay. Was it a narrative? Yes, it was a narrative. Was it sort of archetypal? Yes, it was archetypal. And what that means is that the story and the narrative take resonance that go far beyond it. We all know this. Now, when you get to questions about Jesus, now, it, it's fun listening to Tom Holland sort of work through this, and some uh, people on both sides will be dissatisfied with some of what Tom has to say. Fair enough. But the question isn't exhausted by the question of, what happened? Now, I told a story in my Sunday school class yesterday that actually while I was telling this, it's not really a story, it's more of a narrative. When I gave this narrative, I was actually thinking of this issue, although I didn't mention it to anyone in my Sunday school class. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness that we call grace. Okay. I, I told a story a few weeks ago. Let's, let's imagine a guy who's in his 70s. He's lived not a very good life. Maybe he was taught right from wrong. Maybe he wasn't. But in his younger years, 
took advantage of women, lived for himself, has kids with two, three different women, didn't take much responsibility for any of those kids, never really treated the women that he was with very well, doesn't have good relations with his children, doesn't even know his grandchildren because they don't want even want to bring him, bring him close to the grandchildren. He's getting up in his 70s, goes to the doctor. Doctor says, uh, you know, you've been smoking two packs a day for 50 years. Guess what? You have cancer. Surprise, surprise. Oh. And he remembers when he was a kid getting sent to Sunday school. And he learned about heaven and he learned about hell. And he thought, you know, I don't know if I really believe in hell, but if there's a chance, I should probably avoid it. So I'm going to go to that church down the road, and when they have the altar call, I'm going to go forward, and you know, I'm going to get my get-out-of-hell-free card by accepting Jesus, and then at least I'll have that base covered. So he goes down the road. He hears the altar call. He goes up in front, but after he did it, he's like, hmm, maybe I'll go next week. What could it hurt? The women hate me. My children don't like me. They won't even let me see my grandchildren. What else am I going to do on a Sunday morning? So he goes back. Here's a little more. Goes back. Here's a little more. Maybe the confession that he made the first week to just sort of get out of hell. Bit by bit by bit, he not, only, he not only goes up in front of church and acts like he's sorry for the way he lived his life, maybe increasingly he is sorry for the way that he lived his life. And even though he's got cancer, even though he's carting around a little oxygen tank, week after week after me, the message begins to sink in. And he goes to one of his ex-wives and says, you know what? I didn't really treat you very well. I'm sorry about that. And I didn't really support you when you had the kids. I'm sorry about that. And I want to try to make it right. So you'll be getting a little bit of money from me. It's not a lot, but I want to give you something. And that ex-wife looks, doesn't trust him, says, okay, if, if checks come in the mail, I'll cash them. <laughs> and the checks keep coming. And he goes to another ex-wife and he goes to one of his kids and says, I wasn't the best father. And I know that. And I'm sorry. I want to be a better father now. Let me know when, you know, let me know when your kid is playing in the school basketball team. I want to come to the game and I want to cheer him on. I know, I know you don't owe me anything. I know I haven't been good. And I know you don't, you don't trust me around your kid, but I'll just come to the basketball game and I'll just cheer him on. And there at the basketball game, there he is. And he's cheering the kid on. And then the kid sees it. 
when the father sees it and says, well, maybe next Christmas, grandpa can come and have dinner with us. And he does. And he doesn't come in smelling of beer. And he's dressed okay. And he has table manners. And he even reads a story to the kids. And there's no drama and he goes home. And the family says, wow. Bit by bit by bit by bit. And he might only last a year or two because he's got cancer and he's dying. And you might say, well, gosh, 70 years of being a jerk and just two years of trying to make amends. Again, someone might look at that in the math and say, no, you can't make up for 70 years in two years. Maybe, but sort of, right? So then when finally he dies, well, he's going to be able to have a funeral in a church. And some of the people in church are going to say, well, he wasn't really around less long enough. I sure wish he had lasted longer because he seemed to be a good guy. And the ex-wives and the kids are all thinking, uh, it wasn't so good. And then at his funeral, the people around the church start saying, you know, he came every Sunday. And when we had to put the parking lot in, well, he didn't have a lot of money, but he did his two cents. And he handed out bulletins on Sunday morning because he knew we needed someone to do that. And, 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 and then the, the wives and the kids are saying, he came to my kid's basketball game. And he bought some presents for my kids. And, you know, maybe most of his life he didn't do so well. But just at the end, my kids for a couple of years had a grandpa. And that means a lot to them. And that's what Paul is saying here. Okay, so I dropped in a little bit of my story that I told in my adult Sunday school class. And the question is, is that story true? Now you might say, well... I wasn't attempting to tell something that happened in history in terms of giving some sort of representation of a, a fairly common sense, observable, physical layer of reality. Fair enough. I wasn't. So in that sense, you might say my story was a fiction. My story was a parable. But as a preacher, part of the reason I tell a story like that is because I know this story will communicate to people. And after the Sunday school class, as what happens invariably when I tell a story like this, now you might also notice that, well, Vanderclay, you know, I mean, you're, you're bald and you got this gray beard and you got all this stuff. You've been, you've been, you've been doing this stuff for a while. Yeah, I have. Well, where did I get the story from? Remember how Peterson talks about how you sort of take a compilation of many lives and you put it together and you tell a story that is in some ways more real than all the individual lives that make up that story? That's exactly what that story is. It isn't about one life. I could list, and I'm not going to do here, I could list a name, I could name people that I have taken elements of their life and put it in this story. And in fact, after the Sunday school class, 
a member of the a member of the Sunday school class came up to me and and she told me a story of her brother which had elements of this story in it because when I told this story that reminded her of her brother. Now, why are these stories more real in that sense than just a just a representation of physical reality? Let me give you an example. Imagine for a minute I'm telling a story about, now again, the, the same guy, because that's the language I used, the same guy that I used in the story in the Sunday school class. He got up. He went to the bathroom. He brushed his teeth. He went to work. He came home. He ate dinner. He watched TV. He went to bed. Now, what some of you were listening for was some drinking. Well, I didn't tell about the drinking. Well, you have to tell about the drinking because the drinking is an essential part of the story. Oh, why do you know it's essential? How is the drinking different from all of the other aspects of the of the story? Uh, I don't know if this is a simple question or not, but it, you often talk about the distinction between how we see the world today as modern people and how the ancient people would have viewed the world and the, the lens through which they would have observed things and perceived things. Uh, would it be possible to pin down maybe the fundamental distinction between how we as modern people tend to view things as opposed to ancient people? Is there a one core at the center that differentiates our, our perception from theirs? Yeah, I think that the best way to understand it is there's a move away from the phenomenological point of view as being this the let's say the point of consciousness towards a a kind of abstracted uh an abstracted scientific vision of understanding the world and so I now what he just said there is very important because when you ask this question what really happened we are not cognizant of the layers of phenomenological perception that we are simply assuming. Because what we assume is, and, and you'll sort of notice this in the, so notice when he's talking about some of these stories, he'll pick a story like this, okay? And he'll pick a picture like this. Well, why would you flash a picture like this when you're telling the story? Because implicit in the telling of the story is sort of a, a, a group of phenomenological expressions that, well, are actually sort of linked. So here's a question. So this is obviously the story of the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Now, um, okay, so you have these horses. Are these Egyptian horses? Well, no, they're just representations of horses. Are these Hebrew people? Are these, I mean, there's there's whole ranges of things that you have to sort of assume and abstract and sort of, this is why I was talking about the monarchical vision, sort of sort of bring up and say, well, here's here's an event. Oh, okay. And you're going to you're going to represent the event in this way. And so now in an artist's rendition of this, you have all of these pictures and smiles and so on and so forth. It's all this representation. And compare that, let's say again, to my little story here, which is a very bare bones representation. And 
what my class was doing when I was telling this story was sort of connecting this to their lives. So my Sunday school class is almost completely made up of senior citizen women, almost all of them African-American. And I have lived much of my life in ministry in African-American communities. And I know many of their stories and I know many stories from my father's ministry, from the church I grew up in and the church that I'm in now. And so I could take all of those stories, I could put this into this, but I told a very generic story. And the reason I told a very generic story is each person would fill in the details of that story as I told it. Now, they would sort of mentally just jump over, let's say, items that stuck out. But they would fill in items that were connected with their lives. And the reason that the members of my class found me telling this story and contextualizing it in the Bible, now I was contextualizing it in Romans 5, which is a fairly abstract story, was, okay, this is the application of the abstraction that I was reading to them. And what I did basically in the Sunday school class was I went through uh, Eugene Peterson's rendition of Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. And I will go through other renderings of that. But the purpose of that is that Eugene Peterson's application was actually fairly, um, I, I thought it was fairly good. But now one of the things that I, that I, one of the points that I made in the class with this little diagram here is that there's sort of level jumping here. And, and our, our brains sort of skip over time and space very rapidly. So I'm telling a very abstract story that everybody is sort of coloring it in. It's like I sort of pencil out the story and people are coloring it in with their memories of people in their life. And in this way, the story not only gets more real, but the story gets powerful and applicable in their lives and it will shape them in their lives. Now, one of the things that I noticed today, so Jordan Peterson has, um, has Bjorn Lomberg on again. Jordan's really hitting, hitting on some of these things. But what, what I noticed in both this video and the video about the psychedelics, which was the last one, was that on his way into the interview, I don't mean that physically, but no, just noticed, again, how I did this. And this is the point C.S. Lewis makes in Miracles, that you can't actually talk without metaphor. And so on his way into the, into the interview, and I don't mean, again, he's, as he was entering the room, no, I don't mean that. What he's doing in sort of, when he's gearing up to have this conversation with Bjorn Lomberg about a topic that Jordan is very interested in, he has to frame the conversation and contextualize it so that it fits into a worldview. And the way he does this is connect it with what he wrote in the 1990s in Maps of Meaning. All right, hello, Mr. Lomberg. Very nice to have the opportunity to speak with you again. I thought, I thought today we would start our discussion by talking about what young people are being told. And I wanna to lay out a few ideas for you and we can delve into this and, and, and we'll move on from- Okay, this is how he's sort of setting it up. Now you might say, well, he's setting it up. He's setting up the conversation. That's exactly what he's doing. What he's also doing is contextualize it and sort of 
like in digestion, we chew, we masticate in order to, that's the first part of digestion. And then we bring it into our stomach and the stomach acids work on it. In many ways, this is what Jordan is doing with this. And he's sort of setting up this conversation. And I haven't even listened to the conversation. I just got to this part and it's like, this is, you know, this is, this is part of Jordan's own continual evolution with these conversations. From there. So I've just been reading Alex Epstein's book, uh, Fossil Future. And in that book, he details out, first of all, his belief that in the foreseeable future, that not only should we, not only will we have to use fossil fuels, but we should use them. And he explains why. Now, if I played that little section for, let's say, one of these celebrity atheists, they wouldn't think anything of it. Because that type of description he just used, it's highly imaginative, it's highly symbolic. I'm not saying that it's accurate or inaccurate, but it connects to what is with us sort of like these implicit pictures, like that picture that Cosmic Skeptic put up of the horse and rider throwing into the sea. He's painting a picture. And the reason he's painting a picture is that that's how human beings actually work. I would say on, on ethical and practical grounds. But he also says something that struck me as very interesting, which is that the view that's being put forward to young people of the role of human beings on the planet in relationship to the environment is essentially predicated on an implicit religious metaphor. And I want to lay out the metaphor and I want to lay out why I think his claim that it's a religious metaphor is technically correct. So the story is something like... Now, now, at this point again, and I don't want people to get tripped up on the environmental thing right here, because the environmental thing isn't the point. The point is that this is how we process and move within the world, generally speaking. And so, for this reason, the environmental conversation is like a religious conversation. I made a I made a video of was it it was from it was from Rationality Rules. This is a few years ago when someone was in the street and they were talking about whether or not you should eat beef and and I made the point again there. This is a religious conversation, and and religion is sort of this this really base strata that we have. And, and it very much controls what's going on. And, and Peterson's going to basically lay this out. This, the, the planet is fragile and virginal and continually pillaged. The pillaging forces are the patriarchy, essentially, the social structure. It's a masculine metaphor. The social structure is viewed as a force that's nothing but uh, devouring and negative and so you have nature you have culture nature's all positive culture's all negative then you have the individual also part of the story and the individual is basically characterized as some combination of predator uh, and parasite and so the reason that's a religious story as far as i can tell is this is complicated but i'd like to be able to lay it out when I wrote my book in 1999 called Maps of Meaning, it struck me that the basic cognitive and perceptual categories were something like chaos, 
order and the process that mediates between them. I looked at a lot of mythological work, a lot of religion, religious writing across multiple cultures and tried to look at the correspondence between that and certain neuropsychological models that were being built, including models of hemispheric processing. So our hemispheres are set up in some real sense so that the right hemisphere processes novelty and chaos and possibility and the left hemisphere imposes order. And the fact that the hemispheres have this structure indicates, because they're adapted to the natural world, let's say, indicates that the most fundamental way of perceiving the world is something like a place of possibility and chaos and potential on the one hand, and a place of habitable order and culture and predictability on the other. So you now, now that all sounds enormously scientific, but again, pay attention to the language. It's, it's also, it's scientifically, scientific sort of brought down into a phenomenological package, the hemispheres and then chaos and order. That's the way we sort of chew things up so that we can digest them. And again, the payout is going to be for people, depending on which side they're on with the whole climate thing, will you eat beef or will you not eat beef? Um, will you vote Democrat or Republican? Will you do this or will you do that? You have these applications down the world, but it's basically an, an, a mythological world that we are inhabiting, a narrative world, and we have to figure out how to operate within it. You have those two domains, and then consciousness looks like it's the process that mediates between the two. And, and Epstein, now I learned in 1999 that these domains, chaos, order... And I suspect that there's a mic on top of him because when he leans forward, the sound gets worse. And when I watch these videos, because I make videos, I'm always wondering, now, how are they miking them? They're always putting those those uh, pods in. But um, are they really using those for sound? Because the sound on those pods isn't very good. So they're, they're obviously using higher quality mics. And the process were always represented metaphorically or symbolically. It's like an a priori axiom of cognitive... Uh, a function and perception itself. The chaotic domain, potential and so forth, tends to be represented with female symbols, feminine symbols, and the orderly domain tends to be represented with masculine symbols. And so you can see how this plays out in the modern world because you have mother nature, who's virginal and fragile, being raped by the catastrophic patriarchy. And you can see those metaphors lurking underneath, right? There's the positive female, the negative male on the cultural front, and then you have to lay the individual on top of that. And the individual in that story, positive, feminine, negative, masculine, is also represented negatively. Now, that's a very compelling story because it does cover all the domains of existence. And there is a beautiful and plentiful and positive element of untrammeled nature, let's say, and there is a tyrannical and predatory aspect of culture, and the individual can be a destructive, parasitical, and predatory force, but that's only half the story, and that's the problem. And so the point I'm trying to make is that we can't structure our perceptions without using something like an a priori category system, and the a priori category system, whatever your a priori category system is your religion, 
It functions in exactly the same way. And we have a religion now that's focused on nature worship, the derogation of culture, and the damnation of the individual. And that's the story that's being told to young people, right? The planet's fragile, culture is nothing but a destroying force, and individual effort is to be construed as predatory, say, in the patriarchal sense, and parasitic on, parasitic in relationship to the natural world. Hmm. So, so I'm wondering what you think about that. Uh, <laughs> And yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, th I think it's a, I know it's, it's, a, a, lot of it's a great metaphor. Uh, so, so again, uh, if, if we go along with this and, and if we all have religion, I would tend to say that my religion is data. Uh, you know, the, there's a famous statistician that say if you, uh, without data, you're just another guy with an opinion, right? We have a lot of right, knowledge right. about the world. And the reality is that much- but, but of course, I mean, it's always data narrative back and forth, back and forth. And, and so he, he will assert that his data leads to this narrative and others will assert that it doesn't. Much of this is built on you know, stories and metaphors and things that we've heard. And it's probably not very conducive to understanding what the world is actually like. And I totally agree with you that everybody, not really just young people, but especially perhaps young people are told. Now, now, now he says here what the world is actually like. And then he's going to use statistics. And I think this is something that we have not really grappled sufficiently with because what we have tended to do since the dawn of the statistical world is assert that statistics give us the actual world. And what we mean, how we're using that word actual is sort of like a trump card. Uh, the world as it is. Whereas none of us are a statistic. For all of us, we're a sample of one in a very deep, real sense. And so all of the other numbers don't matter. When someone walks in to buy a lottery ticket, imagining that you know they are going to win or goes into a casino, imagining they're going to leave with more money than they came in, they're basically saying to the world of statistics, you know, be damned. This is the end of times, you know, this idea of should you really have children? Yeah, should you really yeah. put them into this world, this terrible world? Uh, the world is going to end in, you know, whatever the number is right now, but, you know, eight years or 12 years or whatever. The feeling is that this is sort of end of times. And that's very right. much, as you point out, a, a sense of we have this beautiful world that we somehow... Does and, and this is an extremely religious narrative because... One of the things in the rest of history, if you go back, and one of the things that Dominic asked Tom Holland is, is, do people always think that they're living in the last generation? Often, it's not an uncommon thought. This natural world that we've somehow despoiled and made terrible in so many different ways. And I would argue that certainly if you look back in time, this very clearly is a very modern way of thinking about the world. Uh, you know, two, three hundred years ago, we were terrified of nature because we really worried about you know, the wolves out there. We were terrified about nature right. in the sense that it would kill us in all kinds. Now, even if you sort of unpack his language, we were terrified of nature two or three hundred years ago. Uh, I wasn't alive two or three hundred. What? Who's we? 
were we all afraid of wolves? Well, maybe people in Northern Europe were people in Africa. Well, they were probably afraid of lions and Indians were afraid of tigers and others were afraid of bears and others were afraid of snakes. And, you know, I, I'm not doubting his point, but these imaginative leaps are just how we talk. Not only how we talk, but how we navigate. So then when we go back to a video like this, and, and this guy is sort of aping incredulity, it's like, well, you're not really paying much attention to human beings, are you? And in fact, the tell, which is, did the events of the Bible really happen? Well, I don't know. Um, this is the way we talk. We sort of project out of us a global picture. One of the one of the questions at the estuary meeting last Thursday night was, um, are things really getting worse? Well, I can point to some people in my church who are having health problems, and yeah, things are getting a lot worse for them. Well, why? Well, because their body isn't functioning the way their body used to function just 10 years ago. No, no, I mean, is it, are things, well, what things? Where are you going to have to choose? Are things getting better or worse? I would say that although it was preparing itself before, the Copernican Revolution is definitely the moment where things shift radically, uh, not in terms of the way people think of it, in terms of just thinking of the causality of what turns around what, but rather the, the possibility of formulating a system in which man and Earth isn't the point of view. And so it's like projecting your mind into space and then imagining this like solar system or whatever, and then thinking that that is somehow more real than the sun coming up in the morning. So it's like it's a progressive transformation, but it's like that. I think that's one of the main places where the shift happens. And so and so I think that the technical scientific point of view brings us in this alienated space, especially as technology gets added to it. And so we we start to think things like, you know, that water is is more H2O than it is wet, you know, and uh, refreshing. So we start to see things in their mechanical causes as being primary rather than the way in which they're meaningful to us as humans. Um, and so so you and then you kind of see this weird deconstruction, which happens uh, as as the as things move forward. So I, I would say that that I hope that helps. Like, I think that that's just a basic way to understand the difference between an integrated, you know, point of a point of view where the world is meaningful and and we don't let's say we engage the world with meaning and one which is technical and alienated yeah so we actually kind of uh embed ourselves in abstractions right and then we kind of forget that they're abstractions yeah well it, i mean it's interesting it's super interesting because people don't realize that something like the solar system is an abstraction you, yeah. you cannot experience the solar system there's absolutely no way a human being can experience the solar system and so it's actually like a it's an abstract model that we that we create and that we kind of hold in our mind uh and there's nothing wrong with with abstract models it's just that if we see these abstract models and these let's say these uh, these levels of reality that we don't have access to from experience if we see them as primary and more meaningful than the ones we have that's when the that's when the problem happens and there's and and so you know part of what you see then in 
let's say the Lomberg conversation is okay. So what what they're really debating are which which models are primary. That's and and those are it's basically what religious debates are. So Christianity is sort of a model, and there's a fair amount in common, but not you know there's overlap. But the Venn diagram between Christianity and Judaism, okay, these are models, and of course these they're models nested within you know nested within nested within. So I've I've used this I've used this illustration that Jonathan Peugeot used is so. Um, the solar system. Well, the science is the solar system. Okay, well, okay, so this this picture of the solar system, what does this little button do? No, 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 I don't want that. Um, this picture of the solar system, oh, come on. This picture of the solar system here. Here's the solar system. Is this what the solar system is like? Well, what do you mean? Does it have all those, all that, all those, if I go up, if I if I go up from Earth, do I find this big white line and then I run into a space between a giant A and a giant E because that E is about the size of Earth? Like, oh no, you you you're not you're you're just being pedantic. You're being pedantic because you're you're imagining that those labels are in space. Oh oh, is this how the planets are lined up? Well well no, not exactly. Gosh, what is this browser doing? Um, trust the facts. Gosh, remember, embody. We know what's good for you. Where are we going? Okay, here's another one. How about this one? Or how about this one? Or how about this one? Now, each of these models will sort of demonstrate something. This model attempts to demonstrate sort of size comparison, but that doesn't mean that the sun is this big. Well, it's relative. Well, but the space between the planets isn't relative either. And how about this one? Well, this one sort of has a a comet coming in. And well, how about this one? And how about this one? And how about this one? And so, you know, that one, the sizes are all messed up because look at the sun and then look at Mercury and then, you know, look, look at each of them. That one, sizes aren't anywhere. And so again, all of these models. And so the solar system, we bring it to our mind it's a it's a totally different thing. And so then we say, well, I can't believe the Bible because I want to know how things really happened. Do you? Which things? In what way? What description will really be adequate to things happening? It's almost like we, we actually live in an alienated reality. The same goes for microscopes and telescopes. It's like you you look at something and you think that what you're seeing through the microscope is somehow more real than, you know, the orange that you're eating, uh, and so yeah. yeah. So, so what is the what is the difference between um, one of these models that you describe, like an abstract model of something and a symbol? Well, and so, well, it's not that it's not that scientific vision and abstract these abstract models can't have symbol symbolism to them. Um, it's mostly that the scientific models are made up of symbols. And, and this is part of where this, you know, the conversation gets a little skewed with, with people sort of like, oh, symbolism. And, and, you know, it's, it, we're looking through symbolism. Yeah. We're always looking through symbolism. What we're just trying to do is think about symbolism in a different way and understand 
more ancient symbolic uses of representation and communication. Integrated or the phenomenological point of view, because it is focused on the way in which things come together towards their meaning, it ends up being more um, it ends up being more attuned to what we could call symbolic thinking. And so th and that's the best way to understand what symbolic thinking is, is to understand that in order for categories, any category to exist, it has to be patterned. It has to fit, it has to be patterned itself and has to fit in a pattern, whether it's just unity and multiplicity inside, outside. There are different, you know, there are different ways in which you recognize things as having, has having a center in terms of an identity and then a limit in terms of its, of, of how much it extends into the world, like these these types of basic understandings. And so once we we see that, then that would be the basis for symbolic thinking. And so we understand that the symbol is the manner in which multiplicity is joined together towards its meaning. And that's that's that that's what the word symbol means. What the symbol means two three two things thrown together. So we talk about symbol as being the place where two uh, two uh, rivers meet. Or we say the symbol of the apostles in the sense that we take, we have like the whole of Christian faith. Or, or we could just again go back to our little solar system things here and say, these are symbols. And you say, oh, of course they're symbols. That, that really isn't the sun. No, it isn't. It's a symbol for the sun. And all of these, it's, the page is just simply full of symbols. Now this is this is another conversation with Matthew Peugeot. It's on a small channel, but it was just, this is a fun conversation in a lot of ways. There's a technical level to reality that is not as important as people think. It's important when you do science and when you, you know, do engineering and stuff like that. But it's not really important as a human, as who we are. You know, understanding the technicality of how things work is that really important? I mean, uh, like we we're talking about before gardening. Right. You know, if you experience gardening. Is it really important to know the biology and all the technical, you know, molecular explanations of how the plant grows? No, it's not. It's really not. It changes nothing to the gardening, actually. You know, if you know, if you, you can be really good at gardening and know absolutely nothing about molecules and atoms and stuff like that. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Like, there's yeah. different levels. You could, still put a, you could still put a seed in the ground and it sprouts up and you see, you can still engage exactly. with it all of that way. You, you engage with it and there's it's like there's different levels and we we have a tendency to think that the bottom level is more real than the upper levels it's not the more level, real like scientific technical know how it works level now, now it's funny because when he says the bottom level well how far down do you want to go well let's let's go all the way down to physics and let's think about waves yielding particles and all these little nested particles in the atom and molecules and uh, how far down are you going to go? Because what we tend to do in modernity is think of atomistic thinking, that these tiny little balls. But Yeah, or, or for example, like uh, saying that the atom is made of molecules and atoms, somehow that's more real than the level of the plant itself that mm -hmm. has its own laws and rules and you know, it develops and, and things, but it doesn't matter what it's, how the atoms work at that level. You know, it's like, if you're familiar with computers, we can use the analogy of a computer. It's actually a really good analogy. You know, you can be a programmer, computer programmer, and know zero about the hardware. You understand what I'm saying? Like yeah. you're, you're a programmer, 
you know zero about how the computer works. Yeah, no, and no you can DOS, still be no a programmer. zeros. Yeah. Yeah. And no, no, uh, like the mechanics of the computer, you know, the wires and the, you know, the, <clears throat> you don't, ne you don't need to know that level and you can still be a programmer. So isn't that interesting though? So it's not true that these levels have to be um, connected to each other in your knowledge. You can know, you can, here's another, uh, the opposite, the flip side is also true. You can know exactly how a computer works, technically, physically, mm -hmm. and not know how to program. These right. levels are not as connected as we might imagine. They're not actually, they're separate because they're at different levels. I'll often use the example of a car. So maybe you're an expert driver, expert enough to win races. Can you fix the car you're driving? Well, often, you know, people who are really into cars understand, you know, a little bit about what's going on in the car. But cars have been getting more and more and more sophisticated with all of the computers. And okay, so maybe you can, you know, maybe you could fix a 1950s, a 1956 Chevy, because that engine was fairly simple. But now you've got all these computers. So you're a race car driver. Can you reprogram the computers in the in the Lexus that you just bought, because that little Lexus is full of computers. They say, well, maybe maybe they're really good, a really good mechanic too, so they can drive and they're a mechanic. Well, okay, well, can you refine the fuel that is going into the Lexus that makes it go? Can you engineer the roadways that the Lexus needs to actually travel in the way you need it to? Can you mine the materials that goes into the components of the Lexus that you're driving? I mean, you just go and go and go with this and you begin to see all of the different levels. And then again, back to other Peugeotian thoughts, when you look at it, you see a car. You just see a car. And well, well what is that level? And, and you, have, you have all of these levels. And these things, these things don't go away. So this okay. is kind of the stuff I start to understand at one point. This was helpful for me because it led me away from a certain way of thinking mm -hmm. that we're used to because it's, you know, we see it around us because of the dominance well, of science. Yeah. Matthew, let me ask you this. So it, yep. can we make the same mistake on the other side where we're, you know, we're focusing too much on the, like as you were describing the lower level technical mechanical atomic level can you focus too too much on the higher level above yeah. life let's say um and what, what would yeah. that be how would you describe that well i think you could do that for sure yeah 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 i mean i think <laughs> i don't want to take too many digs at theology and philosophy because <laughs> i mean i have respect for people who who do that and i also have respect uh, for scientists, by the way, I have respect for biologists and chemists and all that stuff. I don't want to like, it's not about that. It's about, they don't have a monopoly. That's the thing. Okay. I mean, I, I have respect for those, um, those areas of knowledge, but I don't like it when they think they have a monopoly and that they, it, it, that their level encompasses the whole thing because it doesn't. So like, for example, that's what I was going to say. Like, let's say philosophy and theology, these are really abstract levels of you know, you're talking about being, you know, like metaphysics, like Aristotelian metaphysics, or you're talking about being and, uh, you know, 
all these categories that are very abstract and in theology same thing you know you're talking about god being uh, omnipresent you know and uh but these are really really high level categories that are extremely abstract i mean is that really useful i mean is it really useful? and and we see this applied all the time have you ever seen an overweight doctor have you ever seen a marriage therapist in divorce court that doesn't mean the overweight doctor is a bad doctor. And the marriage and family therapist in divorce court might be a terrific therapist. But this is the issue of the levels and of our imagined mastery of the levels. And so when you try and reduce, let's say, the Bible down to, did it happen? It's not that simple. And that's actually where the, the, the Peugeot, Peterson, Douglas Murray conversation gets into. And, and you actually need a fairly nuanced conversation because the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus' parables. Did Jesus' parables actually happen? Well, I don't know. Did the parable that I told in Sunday school actually happen? It happens all the time. Some of you might be living in it right now. And now, in my parable, it has a happy ending. Your parable might not have a happy ending. In my parable, the guy goes to church and that begins something, you know, a, a good progression in his life. In the story that you are in the midst of, maybe the dude went to church and he just stayed a jerk and nothing changed. Same thing, you can do the same thing with, with AA. You can do the same thing with, with all sorts of things. So this conversation that I just played in the video I released Sunday morning, as a pastor, I can... I can look at them and say, boy, there's a whole bunch of things that they don't know about that I know about. I'm older than they are. I've probably read more in terms of biblical studies and theology than they have. None of that means I'm necessarily a better Christian. Now, that's an interesting thing. And, and I actually pointed this out in a video I made a while ago. I just figured out how the machine learning figures out how to put chapters in my videos that I never put chapters in. They're reading the chapters off the slides. Clever computer. This video was entitled, Why Do Simple Christians Sometimes Outperform Sophisticated Christians? Well, right away you might ask, outperform. There's a whole lot that goes into my assumptions about outperforming. I have a basis, a evaluation of relevance realization with respect to performance as a Christian. Generally speaking, a Christian that does not commit adultery is better than a Christian that does commit adultery. Generally speaking, a Christian that is more generous is better than a Christian that is less generous. And on and on and on these kinds of things go. But when you get into the let's say, the conversation between Michaela Peterson and John McRae. Yeah, they might not be sophisticated in some of the levels that I'm sophisticated with, but they might be more sophisticated in other levels that I am not. This gets into what in the culture, we, we, when we talk about um, uh, standpoint epistemology, Michaela Peterson knows what it's like to be a woman better than I ever will. John McRae knows what it's like to be an African-American in America than I ever will. I know what it's like to be a Dutch Calvinist than either of them 
ever will. Reality is like that, and, and there's innumerable levels that we are all using, and these are part of our relevance realization. And so again, when you sort of boil down, let's say, the Bible into, did events in the Bible really happen? Does it make a difference whether or not Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. Does it make a difference as to if we can get an idea of what on earth these this Exodus narratives are about? Difficult. Difficult. Am I skeptical that something happened behind the text? No. Does it look like exactly the pictures in my mind that I are that arise in my mind when I read the text? Uh, probably not. And and we all know this about. This was a very famous picture a number of years ago with little alien Gonzalez, and he was you know being taken because of a custody dispute and immigration and all of all of this stuff. But the picture, now, most of us wouldn't deny, well, what's going on in this picture? Well, here we have a guy who's holding a gun and he's pointing it as a child and the father's hiding in the closet. And now, one of the things that we don't see <laughs> is one of the most critical things of all, which is that someone was there in a moment with a perspective with a camera that took the picture. Now, when you stop and you think about that, you might say, why? why? Who's there with a camera? Why are they taking a picture? And now maybe, I don't remember, maybe this was video being taken. Why did whoever wanted to, to use the relevance realization to take this frame? Because right away, when we look at the picture, we look at the face of the cop and we look at his finger by the trigger. Oh, it's not on the trigger. Well, that's good. And we look at the face of the little boy. There's actually a hierarchy that is built into us that we use to process the picture. And for the most part, we're unaware of that hierarchy. And of course, then psychologists will have all sorts of tests and things to try to suss out exactly what's what we're going to look out first. And probably the thing that I look at first are the whites of the eyes of the cop holding the gun. I immediately go right there. What color is his hair? Well, whose hair? The cop's hair. Can't tell. It's like, well, okay, the mustache is a little brown. So, I mean, on and on and on and on and on. You can go with this stuff. And you look at all the levers. Well, there's the government level of this in terms of immigration. There's the child custody level of this in terms of family law. There's the racial level of this. You have these two individuals from Latin America versus one white cop. Now, what if it had been an African-American cop? Would the picture have had as much punch in that case? You have the age of the child. What if it was an 18-year-old? Well, it would have felt totally different. All this stuff is built into this. And, and now if we pull up pictures like this of, oh yeah, it's Cuba. Oh yeah. So now we have Cuban history all built into this. And now we have pictures of him and his mother. And it's like, well, first it's, 
ripping him out of the arms of his father, but then his mother, and wait a minute, there's another kid in the picture here, and, and then the story just gets more and more complex the more that you, oh, Time Magazine, oh, and just, and then, you know, Alien Gonzalez today, oh, oh, well, now he's all grown up, and oh, he's, is this a uniform, and on and on and on these things go. So then when we get to something like the biblical series and we ask ourselves, well, why, why was this so important? Why such a big splash? Hmm. Oh, there's a lot of layers in this. And to just sort of say, well, what we want to know is if it really happened. And then when they say, well, you know, that's probably not the right question to ask. It's not that that's not a very interesting, perhaps important, question in the stack. <laughs> but when it comes to the stack, this is what you're going to focus on almost exclusively? Well, your relevance realization filters are really showing. I get to the end of a video like this and I just think, I don't know if I should even publish this. This is, this is such a hodgepodgey mess. We'll see if it makes sense. So I'll post it. You can let me know in the comment section.